Welcome back to Gays with Kids, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, and I can't believe it, but we're already at the end of our season here. And boy, are we going out with a bang. Kind of literally, since I do spend the better part of this next hour talking with the esteemed Dr. Evan Goldstein about sex. Dr. Goldstein is himself a gay dad of two, and he's the founder of Bespoke Surgical, where he specializes in sexual health and wellness care for gay men in New York and around the country. But I can tell you firsthand that many of the gay guys I know simply refer to him as the butt doctor. So he does everything every other colorectal surgeon might do, but his practice is unique in that he is also specifically working to help educate gay men on ways to have sex more comfortably and pleasurably. He's also on a mission to destigmatize gay sex. As you'll hear on this pod, we talk about everything from whether most gay men are douching properly, uh, spoiler, they are not, according to Dr. Goldstein, and whether those guys who absolutely refuse to bottom might just need some Botox up their ass to help it feel a little bit more pleasurable. So you might find yourself clutching your pearls at a couple of moments during this conversation, as I did, but that's exactly why I found this conversation so important and refreshing, frankly. These aren't topics that all queer men, and particularly queer dads in long-term relationships, talk about super openly and honestly, and there's zero reason for that. We may be dads, but we're still gay, and we have gay sex, so we really should be able to have these conversations about our sex lives and how to prove them. Um, And not all doctors are honestly down for that conversation, particularly with gay men. And Dr. Goldstein is stepping in to fill that hole. Sorry, it's a little hard for me to avoid euphemisms in this conversation, but um, that'll be the last one, I promise. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this is our last episode of season three. We'll be taking the rest of August off, but we'll be back for season four in September. In the meantime, please keep the momentum going. Rate us, comment, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you directly. If you have a great topic or guest in mind that might work for a future episode, or if you just want to tell us how great of a job we're doing, we'd love to hear it all. <laughs> Email us at dads@gayswithkids.com. Um, and in the meantime, enjoy this conversation. Go listen to any ones you might have missed in the last three seasons, and we'll see you next month. Dr. Evan Goldstein, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So um, again, we have a lot to discuss today. I'm very excited to have you on. But again, this is a podcast about gay dads and how they became to be one. And you are a gay dad of, uh, of twins. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your uh, family creation story, how you met your partner, Andrew, and, and how you, uh, the two of you became dads. Sure, yeah. So it, my story is a little bit complicated. Um, I was uh, training to be a heart surgeon uh, first off. And during training... I met uh, my wife at the time. We kind of cultivated a relationship during residency for three years and then wound up getting married at that time. And I was always going back and forth and I still feel like I can go back and forth because I'm in a relationship now that is very similar to the same relationship I was in before as a partner. Uh, But with that being said, Realistically, I realized that I was a different person and that she also deserved everything because she's an amazing woman. So during this time, I actually wound up meeting Andy. And through meeting Andy, he, you know, just really took me into the world to kind of say, hey, look, there's options that you need to have here. One, you can go back to your straight world and just be with her. You can come out and be gay and live on your own, or you can come out and be gay and live with me. Um, And obviously I chose the latter at the time. Um, And it was uh, such an empowering move for me. You know, uh, it's hard to be in the boys club of surgery and be comfortable and be out and gay. Um, And finally, it was such a liberation for me through Andy and through channeling that. Um, Obviously I I ended that uh, relationship 
with my wife at the time. Um, Andy and I really started amazingly, and he had worked with me into cardiac surgery, and I fucking hated it. <laughs> I, I was miserable. Uh, I finally was out. I was finally happy in my life. And then I was doing something that I was not happy with. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, I decided, hey, you know what, let's stop this. Let me kind of regroup and figure out what I'm doing. And I realized at that point, how can I kind of give back to the community? During all of this, Andy said to me, all of our friends are having kids. I want to have kids. And I was like, oh, shit, I just came out. I'm starting to practice. Now you say, do it. Right. And, uh, you know, it wound up being that we were also hanging out with a lot of varying different age brackets of gay men and gay couples. And we started to just see for us how important it was to potentially give back to our family, you know, and kind of pass on what we're doing and the experiences that we have to children. Um, and so with that being said, he basically gave me the ultimatum. He was like, either I'm going to do this or we're going to do this, or I'm going to find somebody else that wants to do this. Um, and I said, all right, look, there's not going to be a good time. Uh, any, I'm always going to be busy. So why don't we start looking at it? Um, and Andy, when he starts to do something, he does it a hundred percent. So we wound up using an amazing surrogacy called simple surrogacy out in Dallas. And uh, we chose her and her group just simply because a lot of we had worked with understanding that a lot of surrogate mothers are on the Internet and chatting all amongst themselves. Right. And it wound up being that with her and her group, she was a surrogate herself. And so there was a lot of this connection between the surrogate mothers and her as an agent that wound up creating a lot of a uh, really uh, a beautiful platform for everybody. And it wound up being that one surrogate who actually we wound up using, who is, is obviously dear to our heart, um, she wound up not choosing the family that she was assigned to at that time. And so literally in 10 months, uh, Phoenix and Sebastian were born. So wow. it was like this kind of quick process that I was hoping would take a little bit longer. And I was We're hoping it would only be one. Yeah. It wound up being two and it wound yeah. up being so fast. So it wound up being crazy. I just want everyone listening to know, especially those of uh, you that are not dads yet, that that's not often very common. <laughs> so usually it does take longer. Yes, it's, yeah. It does take longer. Yeah. You know, between, uh, I think, what do they say now? About two years or so. Two years to is what they kind of assume. Like, yeah. But there are, yeah. you know, so of those of you that are wanting families quickly, you know, maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones like, uh, uh, like, <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, it's a great strat. I'll also just say that, you know, Simple Surrogacy, we're big fans of them. Uh, they're uh, part of our partners to fatherhood at, at Gays with Kids. So we work very closely with them. And I do think that their unique advantage is that they were founded by someone that was a surrogate and then someone that was an egg donor. So they really come to the practice with like deep knowledge of what these, you know, amazing women are going through um, that help you create your families. And uh, yeah, we can't say enough good things about them. Do so you live in New York with, uh, with your family? And so I will, uh, I hope you take this in the spirit that it's meant, because uh, it is, I think, a compliment, but I know a lot of gay men in the city where I li live as well that refer to you as Dr. Ass or like the uh, <laughs> butt doctor, like a lot of different things have come up. So, <laughs> so with that in mind, and I know you do a lot more than that, but let's talk a little bit about Bespoke Surgical, when you founded it and why, and what, what are some of the services that you offer uh, gay men, but also just the broader LGBTQ community? 
Yeah, sure. So Andy and I currently live with the boys up in Katona, New York. So we moved out of the city with oh, okay. uh, with co with COVID. Right, right, right. Uh, kids are so happy out here. They're actually in sleepaway camp for eight weeks. So wow. they're gone as we're we're talking now. And then we have a small pia de terra in the city. So I get kind of the best of both worlds yeah, for right. New York and whatnot. But I, I really saw a huge need in in the gay community. Um, I just realized that nobody was talking about sex. Nobody was uh, educating. Nobody was looking at the community to try to say, okay, what is, how are people engaging? What are people doing before sex? What are they actually doing with sex? And, and what are the risks associated with the way we engage? And that in and of itself, and especially in relationships with open relationships and understanding what that means and what your risks are, especially now as we're talking with monkeypox and yeah. COVID and all of this, um, and so I just said to myself, God, it's so interesting. Why aren't people talking about anal sex and who is actually taking care? If someone gets hurt, where are they going? And the reality is, is that there was nobody that was specialized in this environment. And actually, Andy, my partner was like, oh, I don't think this is going to be a success. Who cares? They're just going to go. Who cares if somebody's gay or not? You want to go to the best doctor? I said, yeah, but first off, I think that people will care because they know that whether I take it up the ass or not, they're walking into an office that is supportive of that. And you don't have to think about yeah. all those other narratives, right? Um, and also the fact of the matter is, is that nobody that's out there was looking at sex the way that I wanted to. And so that really spawned off Bespoke Surgical. And you know, I opened it about 10 years ago and I, you know, I actually had to train myself because the reality is, is that everybody's barometer of success was, are you shitting okay? Yeah. <laughs> not, not, are you shitting and can you have sex and do what you right, want right, sexually? Right. So, so what we do at the practice is we do a lot of evaluations of understanding what people want sexually, looking at their sexual history and analyzing risk. We do examinations both in and out to make sure we're not missing simple things, whether it's HPV and anal warts, whether it's fissures, tears, skin tags, et cetera. And I do a lot of functional work, which is if you get hurt, how do we repair it and fix it, whether either medically or surgically? Um, what about if you're mentally more of a bottom and you can't bottom because it's painful, it doesn't feel comfortable. Uh, obviously we do all the analytics of that and try to figure out is there medical versus surgical options. I do a lot of work with Botox to help relax. There's some people that can take kind of average size penis, but they want bigger or their partner's bigger or they wanna get into fisting and big toys and they can't. And so the key for me was to create an environment that was just so non-judgmental, that has no bias whatsoever, that allows for us to say, okay, how do we meet you where you are? And say, okay, great, this is what you do, awesome. How do I look at risk, minimize risk? And then how do I, as a surgeon, know the right way to treat it to allow you to get to where you want sexually? And it has been this awesome, awesome rise of, you know, First, we had to actually start having the conversation. You know, when you look at most medical doctors, specifically in the gay space, over 90% would not talk about sex. And so now you start to say, well, Jesus, how do I start to have the conversation? And it's kind of 
obviously popular press, it's doing this, it's, it's working over the last 10 years to kind of push the narrative that we really deserve more as a community. And now knowing that, that people have a safe space to explore and get into an environment that is supportive of how they're engaging, it really has changed the world for so many people. I mean, I don't know of any other services, any other doctor that's doing what you're doing. Maybe you do. Um, but it really is like in, in a lot of ways, it just makes me think back to this. I grew up in Utah and the in our you know version of sex ed was like, you know, showing up one day and they're going to be like, you're going to, you know, grow some hair in some places. And that was it. You know, there was no talk about straight sex, let alone gay sex. But in, in, in you know, some of what you're talking about, it really does feel like there's like you're you're giving the queer community sex ed that they should have gotten when they were really young and maturing and that, you know, it's, it's difficult to know where that should be happening exactly. But like, it, you know, it's, this, this is just not stuff that people talk about often with their medical providers, but it is stuff that people talk about with their friends, you know, so gay men, you know, for any straight people listening, if you want to like, you know, put your earmuffs on for a second, but you know, gay men talk about sex with each other all the time. We talk about these issues. We talk about whether it's painful to, to bottom or if it's, you have struggle as a top or, you know, these are things that, um, that, we talk about we don't have great solutions for a lot of people don't realize that there are and there can be ways to you know to work through some of these issues. So uh, I, I guess I'm interested to know just in your practice, uh, have you in the ten years you've been in in practice, have you seen your clientele change much? Are you do you deal mostly with like younger single gay men? Do you work with a lot of partners, a lot of uh, gay dads? Yeah, I think it's it's a ga- it's the entire gamut. You know, obviously, I'm seeing a lot more married couples. I'm seeing a lot more divorcing couples. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. um, I I am seeing uh, a lot of gay dads um, and and all over the gamut. You know, I mean, I think it's an interesting world. You know, if you look at gay medicine and the evolution of that, it really stemmed obviously from HIV. Right. And then where I fit in was to say, well, HIV is a chronic disease. But what about all the other gay men, one that don't have it or that have it and it's completely controlled? What are they doing with their sex lives and how do we kind of fit that to make sure that it's safe and risk free? With that being said, so you start to see obviously youth. I do a lot of people coming from that are first timers or engaging and unfortunately wound up having bad practices from the beginning. And because we're in New York, we have a lot of different schools from Pace to NYU, et cetera. I see a lot of, in terms of obviously people that are engaging a lot, so sex parties and whatnot, but also I see gay dads and single dads and also older gentlemen that either they lost their partner or they've kind of separated and taking a different route in their world where they're like, hey, I wasn't bottoming before, but I want to be more relevant and I want to stay in the space and how do I learn and whatnot. So I don't think it's a, it's an age-specific yep. uh, practice. That's I see the, ga- the gamut. Everybody needs the education and everybody needs access to care that will just better them to just enjoy their life. And whether it is bottoming, whether it is uh, just external anal play, whether it's fingering, whether it's whatever it is, the goal is to make sure that you're doing it correctly, minimizing as much potential injury as possible, and maximizing all the pleasures that we all want to seek. Absolutely. So this is, you know, I think one of the goals that we have at Gays with Kids is to help other gay men realize that, you know, just because you're a dad, um, just because you're married, just because you might have some sort of like semblance of like a heteronormative lifestyle doesn't mean that you lose a lot of what I think makes the queer community uh, kind of special. And, and, you know, so queer people have always been at the forefront of a sexual revolution and uh, family formation and 
the way that we couple up or don't or choose not to. But so I'm just curious if uh, there's anything specific uh, that you see within gay men who are married with kids that is kind of unique to them in their practice and their sex practices that you see, or if it's just, you know, pretty much the same like any other gay couple or a gay person. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think like in anything, you know, when you're married and with kids or you're, you know, just raising children, there's the the, the sex part takes kind of the back burner, uh, especially in when the kids are younger and you're exhausted and you're tired and whatnot. So, I mean, I think I we talk a lot about uh, one is kind of continuing the the spice in the relationship and making sure that there's kind of us time to create that because I do think sex is a a huge important component and the reality is is that if you're not getting it at home your dick is going to find it other places and so with that being said you know the dick and the ass are very very important uh parts for our world and so the key component for that is to just be honest with yourself and 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 your partner or partners in the relationships that you're you're kind of working with to really just make sure that there's open lines of communication really making sure that you know there's kind of these honest and uh, open conversations that you periodically check in to really just make sure that uh, everyone is aligned in that and and obviously you know the the key component also is to just make sure that you're having regular checkups uh, I usually say to pop into the office at least once a year, we do what's called an anal pap smear to make sure we're not missing anything, specifically if you're more of the bottom in the relationship. Uh, we take a look inside and out. We also do what's called a manometry exam, which is looking at the muscle and making sure that over time we're not getting too loose or the opposite, that we're not too tight. Um, and, and then obviously through that, we're kind of trying to figure out, like, are you happy in your world? And 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 again, it's it's ups and downs. I mean, we all get this. We're all aging together. There's roller coaster rides within the partnership. Right. Um, and, and also the key component is that I think sex is is very important. And I think that it's it's crucial. And and the reality is that if you're if you guys aren't feeling as if the connection between the two of you is there, then then that's totally fine. And make sure you're all on the same page. Make sure that we look at what are other options to minimize if we're going out of the relationship, STDs, monkeypox, yeah. risks associated with all of that, um, and setting the stage for success for the relationship to continue forward. I see the most important role in all of what we do, whether it's sex, whether it's parenting, wherever, is to create such a partnership where there is communication. I think that I have seen over and over so many of the best relationships, it's all about communication. And the worst ones, it's just, you know, there's, there's no communication of the wants and the give and the take and the partnership that's there. Um, and, uh, and, and then they, they don't unfortunately last long. Right. No, absolutely. And I do, again, this is kind of what I was saying about us being at the forefront often of just the way that we live our lives sexually and, and in partnerships is that we, I feel like, uh, like I'm a single gay man at 39 years old and like dating, like when you like very early on in dating, these are conversations that I think gay men tend to have. Like, what is your feelings about monogamy? Uh, do you see yourself having kids and having an open relationship? What does all that look like? I think it's, uh, you know, in some ways, I think that we are ahead of the curve than a lot of straight people that these things might kind of catch up to them later. But as you're saying, I think that's not always the case. And it's like just open lines of communication is always going to be really important, no matter what stage of your relationship you're in or your you know sexual history. You know, again, I, I feel like maybe a lot of your work has kind of turned you accidentally 
into a bit of a therapist as well, right? Like a sexual health coach. <laughs> yeah. just, uh, Cause again, this, the people aren't getting this information elsewhere. I will just tell everyone to go to your website to look at, oh, you have a lot of really great information there and on your, uh, your other brand future method, which we can talk about and goes into a lot of detail as to, you know, how to approach things like group sex ethically. And, um, you know, I'll, so I, I definitely go look for these kinds of informations, but my question here is like, how do you talk or how do you coach those of your clients with kids to talk about sex, to talk about all of this, what, you know, obviously there's um, an age appropriate way to talk about sex and people I think should be doing that from a very young age. It's just not something that a lot of us got exposed to, <laughs> especially not, you know, those of us in Utah. So do you talk with your clients about how to talk about this? Not only, I guess, with their kids, but especially since some of these are sensitive um, sexual practices that might be, that might carry stigmas around them. You're trying to help destigmatize that. But so how do you do that for uh, gay men that come into your practice with uh, with their kids specifically and also just their broader networks? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no right answer to this. I think obviously it just depends on the family dynamics, but I'm assuming that you're talking more of like, if my children are talking about sex and how do I approach talking to them in that, in that capacity? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I guess very just specifically, it's, you know, like kids growing up will understand what two gay men are doing sexually. Right. And then they also understand that there's this stigma around it. So I guess I'm just curious if that comes up um, at all for you and, you know, how you kind of approach just helping to destigmatize that for people since you're doing that with gay men directly, but you know, the stigma is still there societally. Yeah. You know, I think I, for me, I always think that honest open lines of communication and open dialogue is so important in the mix. Um, you know, it's interesting Phoenix. Uh, one of my kids said to me the other day before they left for camp, he said, can you and Papa have another kid? And I said, oh, you know, what, what, what's the deal? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you know, we want a younger sister or a brother or someone and blah, blah, blah. And then he said to me, he said, oh, and, and it would really give you and Papa a good time because you would have to sleep in Papa's room in order to make the baby. Um, and it was so, so adorable uh, for him because, you know, it's so interesting. Andy and I live in separate rooms. He has his own bedroom and I have mine just because I get up early and we have much better, different kind of sleeping patterns. Right. Um, so it was so cute for him to one, be worried that me and Papa weren't sleeping together in the same bed. Yeah. Uh, and then two, trying to be like, hey, can you guys make a child? And so, you know, of course you sit down and you say, hey, look, that, that's not how it works. And we go through the surrogacy process a lot of, of for them to really understand, you know, what it is entailed to, to create you. Um, and, and, you know, the one sad thing that I have seen is that Phoenix and Sebastian constantly go back to not understanding the egg donor mm, and yeah. uh, not understand. They understand that biologically they are not the surrogate mothers, but they don't understand why the egg donor doesn't want to be involved in their lives. They don't understand why they don't have, like, why isn't that mother, especially the genetic mother, why isn't she hard? I want to meet her. Uh, and it's constantly getting a little bit stronger yeah. as they age. And they're about 10 years old uh, right now. But from a sexual perspective, I think it's just cutting it off at the pass, you know, real quickly and just, you know, analyzing what they're saying and saying, hey, that's not right. And then, you know, the love is love for me is a huge component, whether it is two women, whether it is uh, three men, whether it's two men or one and woman and a man, all 
all of that is out of compassion. All of that is out of love. And that in and of itself uh, should suffice as it goes to that side. Now, as the kids are aging more and they're seeing things, especially, uh, you know, from the internet or on TV, that you need to start kind of coddling that to make right. sure that what they're seeing is appropriate. And, and also, I, I do want them to see what is not appropriate because I also then say, well, wait a second. One, that's the movies. Two, that's not the way that I would think would be approachable for you. These are the certain things that I would recommend. Um, and then also, you know, you can also talk as it relates to as a parent, making sure that they get the HPV vaccine, making sure that they understand their, you know, their private parts in a way that that is their own and, and what's the function of those. And, and so we are very, you know, when it comes through to us, boom, right then and there, we say, okay, let's talk about it and kind of analyze it and create an environment where the kids also are more forthcoming, where they can come and say, hey, I don't understand this, or I made a mistake, and this is, uh, what, what, what do I do? That type of situation. Right, right. Those of you with babies and small kids at home, think about this. A lot of the food you pass in the baby food aisle at the grocery store has been sitting on that shelf for longer than maybe your kid's even been alive. The stuff can be so heavily processed and our kids deserve better. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Little Spoon, which has an awesome menu of baby and toddler kid food that is non-GMO and organic, made with fresh ingredients and absolutely nothing artificial. It's all basically homemade and just delivered straight to your door in a cooler box so you can just pop the meals in the fridge or freezer and heat them up when your little ones are ready to eat. We had a couple of uh, tiny taste testers help us out. Um, Eight-month-old Logan absolutely loved Little Spoon's baby food blends, especially the guava, mango, apple, and pear mashup. And he loved the organic smoothies as well with hidden vegetables like the sweet potato and carrot cake smoothie, as well as the veggie pack green dream with chai. So uh, with kids' meals under $5 and baby food smoothies and snacks under 3 trying Little Spoon is really affordable. At Gates with Kids listeners can get 50% off their first order with the code GWK50 at checkout, and that's uh, at littlespoon.com. That's code GWK50 at littlespoon.com. Okay, so it's come up already a couple of times, and uh, you knew it was coming. <laughs> so let's talk about monkeypox for a second, because I know, in at least in my circles, the only conversation happening right now, you know, gay bars and just any sort of like outing is, did you get the vaccine yet? Have you been able to get an appointment? When are you trying? A lot of frustration with how the rollout has happened uh, with the vaccine here and on the heels of the COVID chaos. It's just like, you know, very troubling, especially since we're a community that's not, um, we're used to being treated this way. <laughs> uh, but from your end as a, as a medical professional, like how are your clients reacting to this? And uh, what, what are you telling them if they're coming in with fears or concerns? And just, yeah, any other perspective you have on, uh, on what people should be doing with this, you know, new health scare we're now having to deal with? Well, I, I think a couple of things. One is the good thing about monkeypox is that you don't die, right? right. So th there's not enough of that talk. Right before when it was HIV and AIDS, it was, you know, it was a death sentence. Right. right. So from from that perspective, yes, it's annoying and yes, it's painful. And yes, you know, it's uh, it's isolating. But at the end of the day, you're not dying. Now, with that said, yeah, I think the rollout was terrible. Um, and I think that access to the vaccines is not the greatest. And I think it will get better. Um, and, you know, there's every day there's posting of the Chelsea Clinic or some of these others that are doing that. I think that, you know, the government really wants to try to keep everything or wanted to keep everything in somewhat of a controlled space, but realistically should have rolled out to primary practitioners, easier testing access and 
or really appropriate kind of protocols to make sure that this is taken care of. Now, what do we see? Well, we're seeing that it's not necessarily the sex side of things. It's a lot of the circuit parties too, right? It's right. the take your shirt off and start dancing and the person that's walking past you rubs you uh, without even knowing it. And then boom, stuff stuff happens there. So I think that just looking at your practices to really make sure one that you know, if you're going to these parties that maybe you don't take the shirt off uh, for that perspective or keep distance and keep room. The other is obviously, you know, also if you're hooking up with somebody, look and make sure just like anything else, I talk about like herpes or warts or skin tags, you know, if you're going to rim somebody and there's something a little funky on there, don't be afraid to be like, hey, you know, what is this? Or you should get this checked out. Or maybe you don't engage in that capacity because at the end of the day, you don't know necessarily what it is and what it potentially could become. You know, the thing that I worry the most about it is the gay narrative of monkeypox. And yeah. in the climate that we are right now, you know, I could understand why they didn't want to make it a sexually transmitted disease. And even though we are getting it in that capacity, uh, the reality is, is that I, I, I'm happy that they're not labeling it as such because I think it creates so much more turmoil in our community and yeah. stigma. Uh, but that is where it is going. And that's the rhetoric that I'm more worried about than the actual disease, because uh, the world that we're living in right now, now to be like, oh, look at this. Here's another gay disease. You know, these fuckers should be exterminated and this and that. And, and so it really starts to create uh, just a much more of an unpleasant situation. Uh, history repeating itself. It's great. I mean, I think what you're saying, the difference between this and HIV is, especially as it was first coming around in the 80s, is very distinct and we should be very clear about that. But it is, this is falling in our laps again <laughs> uh, and uh, we're being blamed for it again. And also, you know, so it's obviously not just queer people that are going to be impacted by this. So those that are being impacted outside of our community, there's then a stigma there. Maybe people are going to be less forthcoming about the fact that this is something they've been exposed to because they don't want to be characterized as having a gay disease, quote unquote. It's been pretty interesting to see this roll out. I hope that you know, I hope they can get it together soon. But, uh, but so I think those are that's good pieces of advice to so just you know be a little bit more aware with your sexual partners and if you're going to parties or just events where there's a ton of people to just exercise a little bit more caution. Would you recommend that most people do try to get this vaccine? Yeah, yeah, I think that again, you know, we we have to really see what the ramifications are. Look, we all rushed out to get the COVID vaccine, and every one of us wound up getting COVID anyway. And yeah. so yes, it, yes, it it diminished the outcomes, right, the severity. And so we may see the exact same thing. Obviously, people are using the smallpox vaccine. Some are saying, oh, you were smallpox, you're already vaccinated for smallpox, you have some protective, but it's too early to know. So I think at the end of the day, you know, it's worth doing from a vaccine perspective, but we're gonna have to just see whether or not it actually aids and changes from a ramification perspective. Right. Just around other STIs, yeah, you mentioned HPV a couple of times. I guess I've heard that just post-pandemic that there's been an increase in some and a lot of infections for folks that are single out there might have open relationships. Obviously, this is something that's uh, of concern that you want to be paying attention to. But um, anything that you're seeing in there, and then anything that you would be counseling people to be doing or thinking about right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think all of the all of it fits. You know, from herpes to gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. Obviously, we see a lot of that, especially summer months, and everybody's kind of Fire Island, Hamptons, exploring and living their world. Which, you know, I think the key for me is one, just to make sure that people are really taking their sexual health seriously. Obviously, we know that there's certain things that are out there, whether it's prep 
whether it's prophylactic antibiotics. I do a lot with couples in terms of their open relationship, whether it's together open or out and open. Um, but you know, nobody wants to bring an STD into your family, right? Um, and and with that being said. It, it becomes a huge sticking point and it becomes obviously where you kind of, you shame yourself. You feel dirty in the situation. It creates an environment where you're like, well, I do want to go out and hook up, but I don't feel comfortable doing that. And right. then it just kind of sets the stage for you like, oh, well, fuck it. I'll just jerk off. And then you're like, but that doesn't do anything for what you actually want. So we do a lot of work with prophylactic antibiotics. So whether it's like, hey, I'm going, you know, my partner's away for the weekend or he's taking the kids and I'm doing X, Y, and Z, you can use prophylactic either doxycycline or even prophylactic herpes management if you know you have a higher risk or it's a random party or person that may put you at more risk. Hmm. So there are a lot of things that we can do once we understand what you're trying to achieve sexually, where we could say, okay, how do we minimize any potential complications. Do you have a history of HPV? Do you have a history of herpes? Any old history of anal warts? What's going on in and out? Sometimes people have extra skin or hemorrhoids that may not necessarily be bothering them, but during sex, it creates a nidus for infection. The ass itself, sometimes uh, all this stuff creates friction. And if there's friction that's there, you now can get irritated and inflammation. And that was really what spawned Future Method, the products company that I co-founded. And it was all because I started to analyze the way all of us were engaging and realized that people are using unsubstantiated methods and unsubstantiated products mm. to do what they thought was appropriate. And you start to analyze that and realize that that is a lot of what I see, meaning overdouching douching with water instead of something that is more appropriate, changing the microbiome, you know, water-based lube is notoriously common ailment in terms of doing that. All of these certain things that nobody really kind of thought about. Now you start to say, especially in my practice, which is like, well, wait a second, I'm seeing the same patterns with people. Why is that? And then you start to get to the root of all of that. And then I said to myself, okay, great. Well, why don't we come up with products and the education to support the way we engage? So the first product we came up with was an appropriate anal douche solution, which is not water. It's not enemas. It's right in a balanced environment that decreases all of that inflammation. And it allows for us to really, really get to better douching practices. It also really allows us for, to analyze and educate. Most people are over-douching, they're using shower hoses, they're putting soaps or oils, and all of these things create an environment that wreaks havoc. And the limiting factor that I have is that the area of where it wreaks havoc, you don't feel. Right. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that there are issues. So when I see you in the office and I'm looking inside and I'm like, oh, I see a ton of mucus. Yes, maybe it's an STD, but are you douching? And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm douching. And well, what are you douching with? I use a shower hose. And then we start talking about like the dynamics of that really wreaking havoc and causing issues and changing the microbiome. We uh, came up with the first ever pre and probiotics specifically for anal sex, which is to say, no matter what we do, even if we do the right douching practices, just from sex itself, we're gonna change the microbiome. How do we 
replenish the microbiome. And so the thought process is how do we bring science and sex finally together into a, an environment that's not only from a products perspective, but an educational perspective, and then also obviously a clinic perspective that if something goes wrong, that you now have access to that. And for me, it was really like, uh, you know, this awakening of, all right, well, there's so many things that need to happen in the community to drive this into a space worldwide where people have access to all of these things. And it's all for the betterment of the bottom, right? It's for the betterment of the relationship. It's for the betterment of the top. All of these things are to look at a community and say, these are the issues. How do we, how do we first analyze them? And then how do we attempt to fix them across the board? Right, absolutely. So, and this is, you know, a perennial conversation among gay men as well, uh, but just that, you know, so much of this ends up falling on the receptive partner in the bottom to be worrying about all this. So let's talk about what tops can do. <laughs> or how do you counsel tops when they come into your office as well? You know, is there more that they could be doing to be aware of all this and, and how they might be contributing to problems or how they might be able to relieve them? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first off, I think the best tops in the world have taken it up the ass themselves. <laughs> um, and so well I think that we, yeah, you know, we need to look within and understand why we don't either enjoy anal sex or is anal sex painful. And, you know, the notion that you need to bleed and have painful sex, it, it, it's so taboo. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the tops that I see when you start to dive deeper, you realize that they're tops because their first experiences were terrible. Right, right, they're, right. they're too tight. They're kind of type A and they can't necessarily fully relax. But the reality is, is that a lot of them do have, and I say to them, look, if you were to get so much pleasure, not bleed, not have pain, would you bottom more? And a lot of them are like, yeah, fuck yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah. great. That, that There's lots of things that we could do from physical therapy, understanding anatomy to Botox in the ass to relax you, to get you into a space where you feel comfortable in that environment. But also I think that you going through this, you start to understand the anatomy so much more where when you are topping, you can understand that there are three sets of muscles that need to relax. This is not just stick your dick in with spit, right? right. This is kind of empowering both of the, you know, both of the partners involved to say, okay, how do we set the stage for success? It's, it's, you know, more foreplay, it's good lubrication, it's, it's using toys in a really good way to kind of dilate and open up and get into a good space. It's letting bottom kind of face you and be on top first so that you could read their face and you could understand how to get in for them specifically, um, understanding the skin and the muscle and relubricating and understand the process. And so I think that if you leave it up to the majority of tops, and I'm sorry, no offense to the tops, the reality is, is that they just basically put a little bit of lube on their dick, they turn the person around and stick their dick in. Uh, and the reality is that that doesn't work the majority of the time. It causes problems, you can tear, it causes hemorrhoids, fissures, the like. And so the key is to kind of set that stage for success by, you know, that foreplay, licking, external anal play, fingers, kind of dilating and slowly getting into the, the, the world. And then also like reading body habits and kind of looking at each other and really understanding your, your mannerisms to, to what works, what doesn't, and kind of how to change on the fly in the right 
capacity. But the only way I think is for for everybody to take it up the ass. I hope everyone's listening. <laughs> so, so you heard it here first, folks. Take it up the ass. <laughs> and you know, I, I think honestly, I'm having to refrain from like clutching my pearls to talk about this a little bit because it's just so rare to talk about this. Uh, uh, this plainly with folks, right? Like again, gay men talk about it amongst their yeah. friends, but to be talking about it in ways that it's like, there's things that you can do to, to make this all a little bit better. Yeah. I guess the question is here, like, are you outside of your practice too? Like, uh, I know you do a lot of like advocacy around this. Um, you're very public about your practice. Uh, again, you're, I don't know a ton of other ass doctors out there that are running around talking about what you're talking about, but so are you feeling like, are you able to kind of help reduce this stigma in what you're doing? Do you feel like that your business is making a practice? Are you hearing from folks that are like, this is revelatory that I hadn't really thought about this in, the, in this broad of a way. Do you think you're making a dent in that? Yeah, it's totally. I mean, I see, you know, just from the perception publicly, also to the, from a PR perspective, you know, that was one of the things, you know, I hired MML PR, which is, has been a game changer for me and Meredith and her group and Greg Lamb, who's in charge of uh, my brands. And the reality is, is that it's a, it's an entirely team approach and about you know eight years ago i said that nobody's talking about sex we need to talk about it and so that was our mission and it was an anything and we would do anything uh, to just have and start the conversation and now anal is so vogue uh in so many things <laughs> yeah, yeah um and it's not it's not only the gay space it's it's everybody is into kind of this anal play world and now it's it's nice to see that People are talking about it and trying to look for medical and kind of therapists and people right. that are really focused on bringing the science into this. Right. Um, I think that, again, you know, it, it's, it's trying to filter through all of the noise that's out there because there's a lot of people that are these, you know, self-proclaimed experts without formal training in anything. And right. you start to say, well, wait a second, how do we start to kind of put curriculums together? How do we put standard of care practices together so that when people are delivering care, but worldwide, this is a huge, huge, huge issue. Yeah. I mean, I see people from all over the world where, you know, think places like London and Australia and, and Dubai and, and, you know, France and all these places where you would think that they would have access to care and the reality is, is that nobody is thinking about sexual medicine. And it is, you know, really frustrating for me because it, it puts a huge burden on what I'm trying to do. And I'm not 100% like, I got it, I got this all. It's right, like, right. we're also, we're also kind of trying to pave a, a new scientific kind of approach to a lot of different things. Right. But I think that at the end of the day, having any of these conversations just starts to reach people one by one and it is a very slow grow and we've spoken about this in my practice a lot where you know the goal is when i see somebody come to me that was in a failed relationship because they couldn't bottom or couldn't perform and i'm able to fix them with the simple approach surgically and in the office and with physical therapy and botox and they're coming back and they're enjoying and creating a family and found a new partner and they're going in through surrogacy and they're having sex and they're, you, you can't, you know, that is what gets me up every day to continue the fight. And I think that again, in, in surrogacy and in relationships, one of the things that I always think of is in those open lines of communication, if you are a top, just periodically check in with your partner because they may actually want to top right. um, and they may actually want to switch things up. And right. so the key is to now know that, look, 
yeah, maybe it was an internalized homophobic issue. Maybe it is that you're too tight and you've built too much muscle there. Maybe it is the anatomy or maybe it is a mental component that's there. But there's so many things that we can do right now that are so important to building an appropriate relationship that don't just let things kind of be like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Well, no, if it's important to your partner, it should be important to you. Right. And the reality is that, that nowadays there's so many things that are out there to help get us into a better space where the relationship just moves forward into a positive, positive trajectory. If you're a queer man listening to this and you have your heart set on having a biological child, you likely already know how expensive surrogacy is, costing as much as $200,000 or more. Many queer men understandably experience sticker shock at this number and become a little bit hopeless. But there are ways to make having a baby as a queer man more affordable, and one of those ways is with Mosey Baby, which makes affordable and easy to use at-home insemination kits. So this kit would be perfect for anyone interested in an intentional co-parenting situation with a friend or a couple, or maybe you're one of the lucky guys who has an incredible person in their life willing to carry your child for free, meaning you can maybe skip the fertility clinic. Mosey Baby's Baby Making Plus Bundle includes everything gay parents-to-be need to get started on their at-home insemination journey. This includes specially designed insemination syringes, pregnancy tests, ovulation tests, and fertility loop. Mosey Baby has helped thousands of LGBTQ couples and singles form their families in co-parenting or known donor situations while avoiding a lot of the major expenses that come with other surrogacy options. You can find out more at moseybaby.com and get 10% off your first order with code GWK10. That's code GWK10 at moseybaby.com. What you're doing is, you know, very needed. And again, I just appreciate how kind of out there you are. I know you just did a, an ad with, uh, was it Postmates uh, that was uh, talking yeah. about like f- bottom friendly food? I cannot tell you how many people sent that to me. It was just being around everywhere. And I think, honestly, the reaction was like, whoa, <laughs> people were surprised that, you know, something like Postmates was like, let's talk about bottoming. You know, that I think it does say how far we've come. And like, I think just listening to a younger generation, like I, I hear people talk about bottoming much more in a way than they might've used to, or just gay sex and generally anal sex in particular. And, you know, and I think it's also important to say, you kind of hinted at this, that, and we'll get crucified if we don't say this, it's not just gay men that are having anal sex, right? This is something that everyone that is interested in having anal sex or has ever tried it or might ever want to try it, no matter how you identify, it's important to know this kind of stuff and that there, these kinds of options are available. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like working with Postmates to, to create that and the reaction that that ad had? Yeah, you know, obviously it went viral, which is what we intended it to do. Um, and there were some positive and negative reactions, which I think is great because the reality is, is that its, it's attempt was to be disruptive. Um, right. And in order to make progress, you need to be disruptive. And the reality was, is that they approached us to just have the conversation. And the conversation is that people are starving themselves or there is bottom shaming or there are issues associated with, with well, what can I eat? And, and the reality was the goal of this was to start kind of for people to think of, well, no, you shouldn't be starving. And of course, no, there shouldn't be stigma and bottom shaming, but there is, and there's your own internalized and there's the externalized. And, and the key component is how do we kind of own that And also think of Pride Month differently. It doesn't need to be, oh, just, you know, raise a flag. It was, how do we kind of work towards supporting? All of that went to charity. They even, even my pay, all of that went to charity. The goal of this was to put together me with Rob Anderson, who is amazing and I adore, and just kind of 
create the narrative and also for people to say, okay, if I do go out to a restaurant and I do want to engage, what are some certain things and safe spaces that I could eat knowing that uh, I'm not going to have problems? And a lot of that, not, not that you're necessarily going to shit on yourself, right. but more <laughs> of like, you just don't feel sexy. You feel right, bloated. Right. Yep. You know, you feel gassy. You just don't want to feel like you're ready to engage. And so uh, it wound up really uh, taking off. Obviously, there's a lot of hate. Uh, you know, the gay community and the hetero community are, are also not overtly, overly supportive of our own kind pushing the narrative. Exactly. So it's always an interesting ride. No, I was really shocked by the reaction it got as well. Because I mean, again, I was surprised to see it. At, but my reaction was like, whoa, people are talking about this. You know, this is so, to me, this is great. Like, a, you know, regardless of what you think about the content, like the fact that folks are talking about this at all, that it, and that a major company is, is saying, let's talk about bottoming. It was, you know, I think to me, really great. So I think, it, it, yeah, it got the desired response it was looking for in a great way. We'll link to this in the blog post that we put out with this so folks can see it if they don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, so I say congrats to you and, for, and to Postmates for, oh, thank you. Uh, for starting that conversation. Um, so yeah, we've covered a lot. Uh, I, I'm just curious if there's other stuff that, you know, might not be on my radar and on folks' radar in terms of their sexual health that you would counsel people to be thinking about, other issues that you're seeing in your practice right now, maybe anything related to, you know, being shut in for two years because of the pandemic and trying to reemerge as sexual creatures. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that I would just say if people listening is just to, you know, really reevaluate what you want sexually and what you have in your relationship and whether or not that jives. Right. I mean, I think that that's if, if, if anything that we've talked about hits at home, there's so many things in our parenting world from the kids to schooling to camps to, uh, you know, to playground bullshit, to all these things that happen. And the sexual side of enjoyment takes somewhat of a backseat or 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 not, or you're, you're kind of doing things that are just but there's no communication within that. So I think the key for this is, you know, one, look at your sex world now and be like, okay, is it where I want it to be? And then two is to then say, okay, and then work with your partner or partners or people involved in that really to make sure that everybody is aligned. And then also to just constantly reevaluate and figure out what works for, for you. The, the nice thing about us being in this modern relationships is that you define what that is. Right, exactly. um, And that's what's so cool, you know? It's like, there, there's no boundaries. Like Andy and I are not married. Uh, you know, the goal for us is, of course we're married. We have kids and this and that, but, but, but I didn't, we didn't, it wasn't important to us as right. it relates yep. to that. Yep. And, and, it, and our kids know that, and it starts to create these conversations that, that, that there's so many different variations yep. in our world. And the reality is, is that how does sex fit into that? And, and making sure that one is that obviously there's a place like what we have, if you want to be seen, take a look, make sure that everything, all the parts are functioning and working. And I tell people, I do about 70% functional work, 30% mental work. Yeah. And the mental work is that, which is to say, are you happy? I mean, when's the last time somebody asked you, are you happy? Not only not in life, but- right? They're like, how do you feel maybe? But yeah, not, <laughs> are you happy? Right, like, are you, are you happy with where you are sexually? Right. Um, and, and, and if I were to, and a lot would be like, Hey, I would be more bottom, but bottoming hurts. Okay, great. How do we analyze that? How do we try to fix that? How do we kind of move forward in that? A lot of people just don't know that there are these, uh, there's access to this type of care where they just feel like, Oh, well, it's fine. 
put it on the back burner and I'll deal with it at another point. But the reality is, is that it ruins relationships. I've seen so many people come to my practice with kids. I mean, so many, but divorcing issues, it's not only a sexual issue, but sex itself is a huge issue. And with that being said, you know, it's like, I haven't bought them for two years. There was an injury before the pandemic. I'm having issues. I'm bleeding. I can't. I've lost that relationship. I can't, uh, you know, jeopardize another relationship. And yeah. how do we tackle it to benefit everybody? Yeah, absolutely. Something I hear from a lot of our followers is that uh, when they get married and have kids, that sometimes they don't feel gay anymore. I've literally heard people say that, you know, especially in parts of the country where they're, you know, they might not have a New York or a San Francisco where it's just all around them. And it's because we start to take on all this heteronormative stuff. Like you're saying, like you have to, you know, the kids first, it's like getting them to school. It's pediatrician appointments. It's all this stuff that is just very, it's always been, you know, these like straight things that they've had to worry about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think there's a lot of trying to reclaim some part of what makes people uh, gay. And I, I guess I worry that a part of this not feeling gay anymore, quote unquote, is that, yeah, you're, you're not prioritizing sex or having sex or talking about your relationship, what you need from it. Uh, and again, we are at the forefront of, of ways to make sure that those things are working, whether it be an open relationship or, you know, we've had a, a thruple on this uh, podcast before that's raising kids. And, you know, there's lots of different ways for, but it, it comes down to what you've said over and over, which is, communication, right? You need to be having this communication. So I'm going to, you know, hope that we can't help some of the heteronormativity with the schools and the pediatricians and all that. But in this way, I hope that we can. <laughs> and the folks maintain this kind of conversation to make sure that, you know, and, and to know that there are resources like yours out there to help them do that and to, you know, to hopefully figure some of this out. I also think that the the key is to have the conversations first yep. with yourself, with yes, yourself, yep. right? You know, because you, uh, so many times you say, well, you know, I feel bad. Well, wait a second. You're like, you shouldn't feel bad because it's right. important for you, right? And and how do you reclaim you right. as it relates to? And that's why it's so important for Andy and I to the kids to go away for the summer. They're gone for seven and a half weeks. Um, it reclaims your own identity, right? It reclaims your identity with your partner. Yeah. It starts to kind of revamp. And for all this time, so for seven weeks, we are able to do the communication side of, of where are we and kind of reset for the next year to allow for everybody to have the kids to have the benefit of that and, and also for, for Andy and I and, and, and kind of the family that we're raising. Right. So I, I'm curious, something I meant to ask you earlier, how has kind of the broader medical world and community received what you're what you're doing and how you know vocal you're being about this being, you know, I, I know you don't just see queer people, but this is very much a part of your practice. But how's the how are your colleagues <laughs> embracing you or not? Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously the primary care or GI or specialty group, I mean, you know, we we have a pretty big gay mafia of doctors in the city that everybody is supportive of everybody. So I think that that's amazing. And uh, and and that was how I basically got the start of this. Uh, there was a physician by the name of Bill Shea, who's hugely involved in HIV uh, care. He's an amazing guy. And he's like, Evan, we need this. You go there, set up an office. Yeah. You will see. And he was right. You know, he's like, Evan, just start this thing. Um, I think that, you know, the medical community is, uh, is lagging behind, uh, you know, just like anything else. Um, you know, I think that they're coming to understand that. I've had meetings with different big universities where they're looking to say, how do we put stuff into the medical curriculum? How do we also create kind of what you're doing and understand that uh, to start creating, uh, you know, the same type of access to that? Right. So I think that, 
uh, it, it's, it's going to happen. The problem is, is that it starts to become very clinic based. Right. And when you have clinics with sex, it becomes this, you know, you want to go into a place that you feel sexy, you feel no judgment, you feel no bias, and you're able to kind of be not incognito, but kind of, you know, like you, you're, you're there and you're, you're able to feel comfortable with that. So there's a lot that's going into that. But I do think that over time, we're going to see a lot more gay practitioners pushing this narrative, pushing that we do need access to this type of care. And, and, and the younger generation that I see, believe me, they're DMing me and kind of conversing with me are, are, are do see the need for this. And I yeah. think within time. So it's, it's, it's amazing times to, to be in this uh, kind of forefront. So you, you actually just uh, brought up another question for me that I think is a really important one, which is that, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of people listening maybe are in parts of the country where maybe they're, they don't have access to a great gay doctor that they can talk about, um, and maybe they don't have the resources to fly themselves here. And I, I assume that a lot of the services that you offer that are so important, but um, insurance might not always cover a lot of it. Um, so what can folks do if they are in somewhere in the world where they might not have access to, you know, get themselves to your clinic, but they, they have a primary care physician that might be straight or that might not fully understand our community like what do you recommend folks do in that instance and how to have these conversations with them if they if they need be yeah i think that again that's what we try to do at bespoke and future method is kind of empower the client the patient the consumer right and for right. them to really understand what what are standard of care if you're going for std evaluation it is not just blood tests it's right. blood tests it's oral swab, it's yep. anal swab, and it's a urine check, right? And just even the basics of understanding that. I've literally had to go, go into a clinic before when I was getting an STI test and request that they do all of those things because, yeah, folks don't, you know, they didn't know. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, you got to think of like, well, look, we're anal, oral, and penile creatures. <laughs> the blood, the blood is basically the last thing that would be positive. So right. with that being said, I've seen so many people with, blood test negative, yet they have a rip-roaring chlamydia anally. So <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that nowadays as a community, we need to be kind of self-serving and take care of our own care. Absolutely. And so before you even go in there, you need to know what is standard and what should be from yearly anal pap smears to internal and external anoscopy for evaluations to STD screening and evaluations. We do a lot of Skype work as well. So yep. a lot of if people are still kind of, hey, can they come to see us? Can they not? Is it worth coming to see us? I do a lot of work on Mondays where I would Skype and communicate and then kind of for us to figure out, hey, is there someone locally and I can give guidance of what they should be doing and kind of working things out. A lot of what I do is insurance-based work. Right. Uh, you know, from hemorrhoids to fissures to tags to uh, spasming, they even cover Botox for relaxation. There's a lot that we do oh, on the insurance side. Um, so I think that the key for us is, and you know, I do Medicaid's, I do a lot of give back to the community pro bono. So right. the goal for me is, look, I want everybody to take it up the ass <laughs> when they want, with whomever they want, and however they want. And hopefully and avoid so, some rip-roaring anal chlamydia. I'm not going to get that phrase it, out of my head for a while. It, <laughs> exactly. And avoid avoid many different things. But yeah, I yeah. think the key, the key with that is to be in a supportive environment, is to be in an environment that educates, to be in an environment that allows for you to have access to the care that you need. Yeah. And then also to put yourself into the positive situation where you understanding 
kind of preventative approaches. You understand how you're engaging and what you could use products wise. So right. there's so much to this. So yeah. a lot of what I do is very repetitive, but it's very basic principles because worldwide we're still at the basics. We can't go beyond that until, I mean, think about how long, first of all, there's so many people in the world with where they shit and have running water in the same location, right? You think of how is that fucking possible? Well, I see it even on the gay space of just talking about anal sex. We're still talking about the basics of understanding anatomy, understanding that it's not lubricated, understand that you can't use spit, understanding that, you know, these are the right ways to get STD treatments. So, you know, it, it's going to take us time yeah. to get there, but we're all on it. We're all in it for the fight. So I think that it's great, all of the education that you're doing. And it does seem like, you know, for folks that may be listening to this that are like, oh shit, I need to do my homework <laughs> a little bit more. I really do, you do have a lot of great um, information on your website, which is bespokesurgical.com and also your product line, which is uh, futuremethod.com. Definitely go there. I guess the question is where else should folks go if they're looking to educate themselves? Do you have any other recommendations? Yeah, so we do a lot of work on bespokesurgical.com, Future Method. We do a lot of blogging. Um, I do a lot of work on Instagram. So through Bespoke Surgical, through Dr. Dr. Evan Goldstein on Instagram and social channels. Um, a lot of it is kind of continuing the narratives and the conversations and people DM with certain issues. And then I say, okay, great. This is not only an issue that you have. A lot of people have it. Let's talk about it. Right. Um, and the more we talk, the more we work with companies like Postmates and with people that are trying to push the narrative forward. I see a lot of negative hate, uh, unfortunately, within even within our community. Yeah. Um, and the goal here is, is, is really to just push the science and push the narrative in a way that everybody benefits. Yeah. It is not, um, you know, a sole, you know, proprietorship here. It's all right. about, right. you know, the community at hand and how do we kind of think differently and push, push the narrative. So I would just say, you know, look through all of our social stuff, follow us, kind of get through there. And anything that you don't see, you still have questions, et cetera, by all means, you know, DM us or let great. us know and more than happy to tackle those issues. Well, it's great that you're making yourself so available. You really are doing such important work. It's very excited that folks are going to be able to uh, hear this and hopefully learn a lot. I know I did. <laughs> and yeah, hopefully we'll have you on a future podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Goldstein. Oh, thank you. Cereal was one of the best parts about being a kid. But then we grow up and realize just how much sugar and junk is in most of it. Luckily, the folks at Magic Spoon have figured out how to make a truly healthier cereal and one we don't have to feel guilty about serving our kids. Magic Spoon cereal has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs. And it's only 140 calories a serving. They're not just healthy though, they're delicious. Magic Spoon cereals come in variety packs of four flavors, including cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Best part is you can mix and match the flavors. Try blending cocoa with peanut butter. It tastes exactly like a peanut butter cup. Go to magicspoon.com slash GWK to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code GWK at checkout to save $5 on your first order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash GWK and use the code GWK to save $5.